Hello and welcome to episode 421 of The Sleeper in the Bust. It is Friday, January 27th. I'm your host, Paul Spore, joined by myself. It's a solo episode, folks. Uh, a little bit of scheduling conflicts this week, and I didn't have a great turnaround time to go ahead and grab a guest, but I didn't want to leave you guys podless. Uh, Eno's out promoting the, the launch of his website, uh, October, for uh, the, the beer website. He was on MLB Now yesterday, and we just didn't have enough time to fit it in yesterday, which has been our normal recording day. And I had a lot of stuff going on yesterday and then early today to find uh, too, too little time to find a sub, but I wanted to get something up. So I've got a regular episode, but just with me talking about it. So I'm going to ask myself a question of the day, if that's not weird. I'm not going to do two characters. You know, I could, and it would be amazing, but I'm not going to do it, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare you all that, but I will ask the question, self, <laughs> who pitches more innings for the Dodgers in 2017, Rich Hill, Yunjin Ryu, or Scott Kazmir? You know, the, the one thing that they've been going for is depth um, in, in terms of volume. I, I mean, I guess maybe that's always the case with depth, uh, but they're not going to get their Their innings are not going to be confined to four or five guys. First off, it's very rare that any team makes it through the season with just uh, five guys. I mean, it happened like a handful of times in the last 10 years. These days, with the with the caution that teams practice with their pitchers, you're rarely getting out of the season without 10, uh, 10 guys making starts. Last year they had, let's see, they had 15 different guys make at least one start, 11 make at least five starts. So Kind of getting back to the question, the one the guy who threw the most last year was Casimir at 136. Then you had uh, Hill with I think 100 total. Not for them. Uh, what was it? 110. Let me let me pull that up really fast. He threw yeah 110 and a third, and then Ryu only threw the one start of four and two thirds innings. So I think I'm actually going to go with Hill. I, I don't know why. He's going to be 37. There's no real great reason to expect him to throw the highest inning count he's had since like 2007 but for some reason I'm feeling like he can get to 130 and that's not even obviously a great that's not even a qualifying workload you need 162 or more to qualify for the ERA title so that's not even qualifying for Rich Hill but I do worry about Casimir you know Casimir all three obviously have had consistent health issues there was performance issues with Hill that kept him out of the league ostensibly for several years as well yeah <sighs> Man, I, I am torn on my answer here because you look at Casimir, what he's done since since returning. He's gone 158, 190, 183, 136. Yeah, last year was the 136, but I don't know. Maybe I just want Hill. I think the right answer, you know, I wish we had more information on Ryu. See, this is why I wanted to pose the question to Eno. That way I don't have to answer it. I, I get off the hook asking somebody else and that way I get an answer for it but I don't have to be the one who's uh, who's held with the, my feet to the fire but okay I'm gonna say I'm gonna stick with Hill and I think it goes about 130 and I think Casimir's gonna go more in the 115 range you know he's had injury issues throughout his career as well um, the 190 and 183 that he threw the in 14 and 15 were two of his, his highest. His highest ever was 2007 when he threw 207 innings. But he's had issues before. Maybe he's the right bet. 
I'm hemming and hawing. You guys can tell. It doesn't really matter. Between, you know, I still want Hill. Even if you're going to give Hill 120 and you give Casimir 150, I want those 120. You can have the extra 30 innings. So I think that, that getting to the major point of who do you really want, I think it's still Hill. I'm going to need I'm gonna need to punt on Ryu until we really find out what he looks like in spring. So I am going to peg him for the lowest total right now. You know, if, he, if he's at all healthy, he's going to get a spot. They've already said that, that they're going to put him in the rotation, but that's a major if. So um, they, they know that. They're planning for such. Guys like Brock Stewart are going to be around. He was an interesting guy, by the way. I'm going to do more research on him. Eno has has had some love for him. I don't know a whole lot right now. I, didn't, I, I can barely recall watching him pitch last year, so I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I've got a, a, a 4-1-1 for you guys on him. But they're gonna they're gonna be leaning. They know that their bread is buttered, of course, with Kershaw at the front end, and then um, and then from there, you know, uh, Kershaw and Maeda, you got their one-two punch, and it's a solid one-two punch. Then you're looking at Hill, Casimir, Urias, um, you know, McCarthy's still there, Ryu, um, Stewart. They got they traded De Leon, they traded Grant Holmes, so they're gonna be looking at like Stripling. Carlos Frias is still somebody that I'm not completely giving up on as, as a potential starter. Uh, Chase DeJong is, is in their minor league system. Wilmer Font, I don't know if he's still... He might actually be back in, uh, back relieving now at this point as a full-time situation. So, <sighs> let's see. Well, that, that, that's the order I'm going with. Uh, we're going to go Hill, Casimir, Ryu, and kind of monitor it. I'll probably revisit this question in March sometime with Eno after we have some some uh, looks at hopefully all three guys. All right, let's get into the uh, the transactions. There have been some since the last time there was a podcast, including a big one with these Dodgers. There was a trade of Logan Forsythe. I mentioned that uh, Jose De Leon was traded. That's who he was traded for, Logan Forsythe, in a, I believe, a, a straight up one for one deal. And so they took the route where they said, "Listen, we're not gonna we're not gonna pay the the big bucks for Brian Dozier." We're going to pay a substantial price. Jose De Leon is certainly not getting off cheap uh, to to pay for Logan Forsythe, but I think the Twins were saying we need De Leon plus. We need De Leon and Bellinger. Uh, I think that was the, what they were going for. I think they might have also settled for De Leon and uh, Calhoun, Willie Calhoun. I don't know if he was ever rumored or anything, but I think they would have settled for somebody else. But I don't know that that the Dodgers wanted to give up even another second A-level prospect. So they were saying, we'll give you De Leon and, and some uh, something solid, but not one of our A-level guys. And the, and the Twins balked. And I get it. You know, you got Dozier's value at a, at a peak right now. You want to get more. And so they passed. But you look at these these two, this is not a bad consolation prize at all. And I, I, I hesitate to even use that phrase because it kind of diminishes Forsyth. Forsyth is a really, really solid player. First off, he can move all around the diamond. They seem to value that with this. Uh, I mean, this is the regime from Tampa Bay that's gone out there. Other guys, too, but it's headed by the former Tampa Bay regime, which also favored uh, flexibility and and had a guy like Forsyth, of course, that's who he uh, that's who he came from was Tampa Bay. So it's not surprising that they liked a guy like this who can move around the diamond, but he should play mostly second base. And he can do a lot of the things that, that Dozier can too. He doesn't have great power, but he makes up for it with a pretty solid triple slash line. In fact, you kind of look at the uh, the two over the last three years, and you got Dozier with a 249, 330, 469. That's where his big advantage is going to be in the slug. And then you've got Forsyth with a 262, 334, 419. So the on-base is is 
dead even, basically, uh, with a little, little, little favoring toward Forsythe. The, the power's where the difference is, but that's okay. They've got power up and down their lineup to where they can afford to maybe have Forsythe leading off, particularly against lefties, but maybe even just in general. Um, and then you've got Seeger, Turner, Gonzalez, Grandal, Peterson, hopefully Puig as well, delivering power throughout the, the, the entire rest of the lineup. Maybe it's a situation where Andrew Tolles leads off against lefties, um, and then it, they kind of flip because right now roster resource has him slotted in at the eighth spot against righties uh, or, or just in general. This is not a versus right versus left, but it has him as the eighth spot with Forsythe at the one spot. Maybe they flip against righties and then t- uh, Tolls probably doesn't play against lefties, to be honest. They, they, they flip where Forsythe goes to one against lefties and Trace Thompson comes in against against lefties in that in that outfield position or somebody like en- Enrique Hernandez. So we'll see how it goes. I think Forsythe, this doesn't really do uh, a, a ton for his value, at least not in terms of, of the outputs that we can kind of control for. It's going to help his runs and RBIs. This is a better team, so we can feel confident that those are going to improve, particularly if he is batting near the top of the order against righties and lefties, uh, but not so much that I think you need to drastically change his value uh, on your draft sheets and anything like that. So I think you should be comfortable kind of leaving him where he is. Second base is deep. Maybe bump him up a little bit. Let me let me pull it up really fast and see where he's currently going. Forsythe, that is. Forsythe was the 19th second baseman off the board. Just ahead of him were guys like uh, Devon Travis, Jed Jerko, and Starling Castro. Below him are Neil Walker, Josh Harris, and Brandon Phillips. He certainly doesn't go down with this move. I can see a case for moving him above all three of those guys. Maybe not Travis. I know there's some love for Travis. He's done some great things. He hasn't really stayed healthy, but he's done great things when he's played. So maybe you leave him there and you bump Forsyth ahead of Jerkstore and Castro. I totally get that, particularly because at this point, when you're looking, Jerko's at a 230 ADP. Castro's at 233 and Forsyth is at 242. That difference is negligible. So if you put Forsyth ahead of Jerko at this point and bump those other two down, you're not even really saying that much. I think if you were really going to make a move and say this move greatly impacts Forsyth, then to really do that, to make a measurable difference, you have to put him above Travis. And so that's going to be a decision you have to make. Do you want to bank on somebody like Forsyth who's never really, he's not a, he's not a bastion of health himself. So I don't even think that you can really crush Travis for the health piece and then lean toward Forsyth. Forsyth has struggled to stay healthy. He had a, he had a full healthy year in 2015, but even last year, he played just 127 games. So I, I think personally for me, I'm going to stick with Travis uh, just above him, but I'm probably moving Forsyth ahead of those other two and then a little bit behind Travis, um, who's a few years younger. Let me see. It's twenty six, age 26 season for Travis, age 30 season for Forsyth. So yeah, I think everything points to Travis, but you do bump uh, Forsyth up a couple slots with this move. Next up was, uh, let's see here, we've got Tyson Ross going out to Texas. They're going to go ahead and take a flyer on him. I think it's actually only one year. And so, I don't know, I don't I, I don't love it from that aspect because I think, and this is not a fantasy situation, which I'll get to in, in a moment, but I think if you're going to take the gamble and you're going you're gonna to take your shot on, on somebody like Tyson Ross, then you do what the Rays did with, uh, with, with Wilson Ramos and you get multiple seasons so that if he does bounce back, you get the benefit of, okay, we're going to kind of bet on you this year, uh, taking whatever we can get 
from you this year, but then next year is when we get the benefit. But they only went with the one year, and part of that's probably Ross saying, no, I'm not going to sign a multi-year deal. I got to rebuild my value, and then I'll go back out into the market next year. He only got six mil, and yes, I know six mil is more than we all make in our day jobs, okay? We've got to stop, and I guess I brought it up on myself, but I'm trying to stem off, you know, head off any comments that come about, oh, only six mil. Listen, Sports are a completely different realm. We just have to accept the fact that what is considered a bargain in sports is uh, life-changing money for every other profession, basically. Except, and, and let's call it entertainment, not just sports, right? Because movies, you know, oh, he's he's only getting three mil for this picture. Okay, great. We would love. I would love only three mil to go from Oracle to Dell. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, we got to stop doing that. So I'm gonna stop making those caveats going forward. You guys can call me out when I do. I need to be part of the solution and and not the problem. And stop pretending like they're the same realm. Six mil for what? Tra- uh, what Tyson Ross had done the previous two, uh, three seasons. Six mil is an absolute bargain. In fact, I think he made more in arbitration. Yeah, he took a took a three point six million dollar pay cut because he had such a major health issue this year. He only threw five in the third innings. That he's got to rebuild his value. So I get why he didn't want to necessarily sign a two year deal. He's going to try to rebuild his value. I think he's a guy who can succeed in Texas. He's never really had a home run issue. They've had some architectural changes in that park that have made it less of a launching pad. I'm not really running away from him because of the park and the move back to the AL. I'm staying I'm staying mostly away right now because of the health piece. And I think that's obviously, um, you know, not going to surprise anyone. It's a bit uh, of the obvious, but that's the reason to stay away. I don't think you need to complicate it by adding other factors. Well, he's moving to Texas. Now, listen, he has the talent that if he's healthy, Tyson Ross is going to be successful. We don't know how healthy he's going to be, so you monitor him in spring. You maybe take a chance on him in some very deep leagues, but right now it's a wait and see. Um, I'll have a draft coming up soon. We'll have the labor mixed draft. I think the 15 teams, we do go relatively deep. I don't even know if I'm looking at him there. Maybe an AL-only situation uh, for a dollar or in the reserves, you're taking the chance. And then we kind of assess what happens in spring training and see if his value can rise from there. Next up is Greg Holland out to Colorado. And this was something that was rumored for a little bit, finally came to fruition. They'd, they'd been one of the first ones talking to him after that showcase. And it was an uninspired showcase back in November, but that was back in November. That's ancient at this point. You know, we're, we're, we're approaching, uh, we're quickly approaching February, which is awesome, by the way. We're so close to spring training. We've almost made it through the disgusting winter. Not that ours is as bad in Texas as it is around the rest of the country, but it was it's pretty darn cold today. I got some new long johns that I'm pretty psyched about, y'all. Just so you guys know where I'm at, got some new long johns. Pretty geeked about them. Anyway, back to Greg Holland. He signs a seven mil, uh, seven million dollar deal, and he does have some uh, non-closing incentives for three mil for three million dollars, which I think is very, very key in figuring out what his role is going to be. I firmly believe that it's going to be Adam Adovino and that this does not really complicate those matters. And I thought that even before I saw about the non-closing incentives, I believe they love Adovino and I believe they want him to be the closer. So you're pairing him with somebody like Greg Holland, who, you know, if he gets it back, great. He, he would love to be closing. I get it. That's the, that's the shiny role. But if he gets back to where he's been and he's just beasting out in the seventh and eighth inning, there's nothing wrong with that, especially because he's making up, he's making the money. And, um, 
there is still a chance for him to close too. I think it's actually, is, is it a multi-year deal? Let me see here. I'm, I'm looking up some info on the fly here and I apologize. Usually just to pull the peel of the curtain back, this is a situation where if I was uh, talking with Eno, he would be talking right now and I'd be looking up the, the pertinent info that I need to continue here, but I cannot find whether or not this is a multi-year. Oh yeah. With a vesting option for 2018. So if he, if he does stay healthy, if Greg Holland stays healthy and makes his appearances and hits his innings, he's going to be there again next year. And he, and again, he could close. Listen, I love Adovino too. You know, Eno loves him. That it's Eno's guy. I'm not trying to cop all of Eno's guys, but I see the value in, in why Eno loves him so much. And he's a great guy. He's been on MLB now. It's hard not to like him. He's already paid, though, so I don't think they have to necessarily protect him. Plus, he's not some young buck that they have to protect for the next 10 years. He's going to be 30, going into his age 31 season. He's making 2.1 this year and 7 mil next year. So I think that it's a situation where, okay, they're going to go ahead and uh, they can have the two kind of battle it out. So I, I, I think it's going to be Adovino this year. Next year's up up in the air for sure. Uh, let's let's put that out there. But who cares? We're focused on this year. I think you draft Adovino as the closer right now. If you're concerned, then get Holland too. But I would not want Holland over Adovino. I would take either both or just Adovino. Brett Anderson signed with the Chicago Cubs. That's an interesting deal. That That's, listen, This is another person that I I like the guy. Brent Anderson, good guy on Twitter. Seems like a good dude. You feel bad for some of the injuries that he's run into. You know, when, when, when people blame players for their injuries, I always find that weird. Oh, you know, he's injury prone. He's a clown. Or like, it's not his fault. You know, I mean, in some instances, it can be a player's fault, but by and large, some of the stuff that has struck uh, Brett Anderson, the dude is snake bitten, and it's kind of brutal to watch him go through. And and every time you think something's about to get going, like he had 180 innings in 2015, it was awesome. You know, he had a pretty solid season. Sweet. Let's hope his late 20s can blossom and he can throw a couple of uh, a couple of 30 start seasons here. And then he makes it 11 in the third innings last year. So he's back, you know, recovering yet again. This is a definite uh, depth signing here where they're hoping they can get anything out of him. You know, he's, he's going to make incentives based on how much he can play. I hope he makes it back. Not really fantasy relevant right now. If you want to throw a buck on him in a deep, I'm talking like 12 team NL only. I get it, but other than that, I think you're wasting your time uh, with Greg. Excuse me, with Brett Anderson right now. Don't worry too much about him. Okay, and last but not least is Luis Valbuena going out to the Los Angeles Angels. I almost said Anaheim. That's why I stopped there for a second. Uh, he's going to go out there. Luis Valbuena, you know, is an interesting player to to a degree. I, I think it's more of a of a real life interest than fantasy though because I, I could see him doing some some decent things for them he has a measure of flexibility Luis Valbuena can stand at a few different positions I'm not sure that he's uh, particularly good at many or any of them but uh, he, you know he's, he's one of those type utility type players that has the, all the different positions because he does not excel at any of them last year he played 81 games at third base, eight at first, just one at second. So, you know, you know, he didn't play a full season last year. He only played 90 total games, but 132 and 149 the two years before, bouncing around through most of it, has kind of devolved into more of a corner guy at this point, first and third. Last time he played more than 20 at second was uh, in 2014. So, you know, he's a power guy. Here's the thing. What happened last year with the power surge across the league – 
excuse me, really curbed uh, the potential value of a Luis Valbuena. I mean, that doesn't mean there's there's none, but it was severely cut by the fact that everyone's hitting home runs now. Yeah, he did hit 13 homers in 90 games, and even if you just want to go really crude and double that form, even though that's nine more games, you know, uh, than than the 81 that represents half a season. Even if you just give him the benefit of it and say, boom, 26. And, and double his RBIs, too. Just Again, let's just be friendly and go 26 and 80. There, there's some value there. That, that, that would be nice. But it's not as much as it was just the year before. Just in 2015, something like that would have been so much more valuable. And I don't even necessarily believe that that's something that Luis Valbuena uh, is going to do. I mean, that's probably the, the super high end at this point, particularly if it came with the 260 average that he hit for last year with Houston. So, you know, left-handed bat. Going to get some playing time for sure. I, I certainly believe that if he's healthy, he's going to figure his way in there at, at different points. Danny Espinosa is a switch hitter, but not particularly great against righties, if I recall correctly. So that becomes kind of a natural platoon there. Uh, in fact, with Albert Pujols likely being down for a little bit at first base, um, I think that's where Luis Valbuena will start the season. Or not... Is, is Albert Pujols actually? See, I'm, now I'm questioning myself in the middle. Is Albert Pujols going to miss the beginning of the season? For some reason, I thought he was. Either way, you've got some spots uh, that, that you could figure out how Valbuena is going to get in. I actually kind of like Yunel uh, Escobar a little bit more than most, but he is a right-handed bat, so you could see, see Valbuena stealing some playing time against righties there. Again, I mentioned second base with Espinosa, even though Valbuena hasn't played a ton there. They, they're doing crazy stuff out there in Anaheim, so... I don't think you should put, plan for a whole lot of games of Luis Valbuena at second base, but maybe that's their big game plan here. I don't know. Maybe they throw him out in left field a little bit and have him start competing for some outfield at-bats. I love Cameron Maben as a player, uh, but he does not stay healthy. It's plain and simple. And I think he's going into his age 31, 32 season. To expect him to start staying healthy at this point is very unlikely. Now, I'm looking now, and I see... We haven't really seen much outfield out of Luis Valbuena, so that's that's pipe dream. I'm gonna I'm gonna retract that as a plausible idea. Uh, he's played four games there in total, so it, it's infield, and he's gonna maneuver around the infield. It's gonna get some playing time. AL only kind of bat. Probably already spent way too much time on him. So those are the transactions that we've had. Now I'm actually gonna do a team breakdown by myself here. I'm gonna do Pits- I'm gonna do the Pittsburgh Pirates. So I'm gonna be asking some questions of myself. Give you a favorite target, a stay away, and off the radar, and then talk a little bit about some prospects. So let's let's go ahead and jump in with the first question. Which of the three outfielders do I want the most on my team? Again, based on their cost. We're not just gonna go, you know, when you when you have a question like that, in this particular case, they're all pretty close. But if it was I don't know. I'm trying to think of an, another outfield. I, I'll just use my, my Tigers for an example really fast. Obviously, it would be J.D. Martinez because he's clearly the best. But if there was some, you know, let, let's say, let's just say they never do the Anthony goes for Devon Travis trade. And Travis uh, had, you know, moved out into the outfield and was going much cheaper than J.D. Martinez as like a center fielder or something. Then you would be assessing, well, do you want to pay the high end for J.D. Martinez or wait a little bit longer and get like Devon Travis? In the case of the Pirates, they're all pretty close. McCutcheon, Marte, and Polanco are all going to cost you a pretty substantial price tag, and, and there's obvious reason for that. Marte is the most expensive. He's going as the 25th guy off the board right now. McCutcheon is at 67th, and Polanco 
technically also 67th when you round. So, of course, it's an average. So McCutcheon is 66.8 and Polanco 66.4. So they're or 67.4. So they're going in the same uh, general area. And in fact, Kyle Schwarber fits in right between them at 67.2. So they're all in that in that general vicinity there. Carlos Gonzalez is pretty close to them as well, kind of creating a little cluster there of four interesting outfielders. So I think the one I want the most, I'm actually, it's not going to be Marte because of his cost. I don't think that he's necessarily 40 picks better than his, than his cohorts there. The speed makes it tough though. I mean, that, that speed certainly helps. And I didn't necessarily think that his power was going to carry over from 15. So I wasn't surprised to see him only hit nine homers. Although I think the way it broke down was that his, yeah, I'm looking at it now, his 2015, his homer to fly ball rate was on the high end. And then last year it went all the way back down. It went from 19% to 8% when he's been a 13% career guy. So if you kind of put it back in the middle there, he's a he's a mid-teens homer guy. Maybe we see a little bit more coming, but I, I personally don't, okay? I, I, so I don't even... Let me pull that back because that's that that's just fence sitting. That that's creating an out for myself to say, "Hey, I said maybe." No, no, no. Here's here's what it is. He's gonna be age twenty eight. He's got four full seasons under his belt. Starting Marte does with ISOs of one sixty one, one sixty two, one fifty seven, and one forty five. So it's it's descending really. Um, and we've seen that his homers twelve, thirteen, nineteen, nine are dependent upon his homer to fly ball ratio. So being logical, you want to put it, again, in that right around that career mark of 13%. That's probably going to yield, unless he drastically changes his skills, which I don't see any reason why you would want to believe that at age 28. He's an established player, Marte is. He's going to hit 12 to 15 homers. Let's, let's go with that. So a few more than last year, although he only played 129 games last year. So if, if he had gotten his full complement, I'm not sure what he would have played. Here's the thing, though. Here's another interesting thing about Marte. He doesn't always play a full complement of games because uh, he gets nicked up. You know, he got hurt last year. He didn't get hurt in 2015, but he did each of the two previous seasons. And part of it could be the fact that he's always getting hit by pitches. And I don't know if they're directly re- related, how often that's happened where he gets hit by a pitch and then he ends up missing two games after, or, you know, uh, two weeks after that. But he puts himself in harm's way a lot. 24, 17, 19, and 16 hit by pitches the last four seasons, three of which uh, were either 129 games, 135 games, and 135 games. The only one of those was 153, and he only got hit 19. That was actually lower than the rate that he's been putting out there. So he gets hit a lot, plays great defense, all-out defense. He's putting himself in harm's way. I think you should plan for a hundred and you know, 40 games kind of at the high end right now and take anything else uh, better than that as gravy. The beauty of Marte is that he's still put up great seasons for the fantasy, even playing the muted uh, 550 plate appearances type deal because those stolen bases are so key. Pardon me for not having that turned off. Um, So all this run up to say I'm not taking him. He's just too expensive for the risk. He's the 25th pick off the board, the fifth outfielder. I get that the speed is there. I'm not going to chase that speed. I'm I'm fine passing on it. So then you're looking at McCutcheon and Polanco. They're basically the same cost. I do not believe that Andrew McCutcheon, this is the beginning of the end. I I don't believe that. I think that he's actually going to be fine. He had something like an 850 OPS in his final 60 games of the season. That's not peak uh, Andrew McCutcheon, but 
you shouldn't expect peak Andrew McCutcheon at age 30. And so if he goes out and puts up a full season of 850, you're probably getting another 20-something homers. He, he still hit 24 last year, even with a, a relatively down season. So I say give him another, uh, let's go, let's bump it up just a little, 26. And then the runs and RBIs are going to continue to be solid. I would say approaching the mid-80s, uh, low-90s, depending, you know, kind of depending on how the rest of the team does. Um, I think his average, if he's up at the at an 850 LPS, that means he's hitting much better. He's going to be hitting the, the let me say, 280. I'm, I'm, now I'm looking at the projection. It turns out I'm actually coming pretty close here. I'm just going to give you the projection and tell you where I differ. That streamlines it a little bit. Steamer has him for 22 homers, 80 ribbies, 82 runs, 283 average, eight stolen bases. I like all of that. I don't really have any any changes I'm going to make to that are quibbles. Like I, the, what did I say? 26 homers, four. That is, you know, it, it, it's a jump. Four more homers could certainly really help you. Uh, and I said closer to mid 80s, low 90s for his uh, runs and RBIs. So like. I don't know, 80, 86 runs, 90 ribbies, okay? You know, that's um, four more runs and 10 more ribbies than they had here. Again, negligible differences that would be nice but aren't going to change the landscape too much. And I say 290-something average. They got them at 283, so I'm a little bit higher there. So the bottom line is the projections like McCutcheon to bounce back. I agree with those projections. I'm fine with that. That said, I'm going to go with Gregory Polanco because... First off, he costs the same, and I think there's a chance that we have some upside here. Okay, look what he did last year. He kind of matched McCutcheon in in some of those key numbers uh, with the homers, RBIs, runs, and batting average because McCutcheon's batting average was down. They, I think, they both hit 256. Actually, uh, Polanco hit 258, and Polanco had 17 stolen bases to McCutcheon's six. So an 11 stolen base difference there with everything else being equal, that's pretty good. Now, you fast forward to this year where I have McCutcheon bouncing back everywhere but stolen bases. I like Polanco to do more or less the same as a baseline with the potential for more. He's going to be 25 years old, so there could be some skills growth. So even if he just repeats, you're basically trading batting average for stolen bases. And in this instance, because there's also the upside to do more, I'm going to take Polanco with the stolen bases and and bet on the upside as well. So uh, between the three outfielders, Marte, McCutcheon, and Polanco, I'm going to go with Gregory Polanco. What's a full season of of Josh Bell look like? That's an interesting one. So he's their switch hitting first baseman. Um, he's not bad. I think he had a I think he had a nice debut. He certainly looked. Uh, like he knew what he was doing with the bat. That bat is really nice. I love that he had a 1.1 walk to strikeout ratio, so more walks than strikeouts. That's really good. Now, he's not a pure power hitter. Um, he doesn't have the, the, the kind of pop that you would normally like at first base, so I think that puts him in more of the corner infield category. I think even if you're in an NL only, that's where you should be looking. You want him as more of that of that corner infield type. Um, hopefully paired with maybe a stud first baseman like a like a Goldie or a Votto, something like that. I, I think that that's where you can really uh, get some of that extra value. This is a guy who's got the, the kind of bat that can really, uh, you know, kind of chase down 300. I, I, I'm reluctant to say James Loney, but that for some reason, whenever I think of a guy who doesn't hit a ton of power, uh, at first base with a good batting average, that's that's the first guy I think of because of those first couple seasons he had, particularly the um, 
2007, 2008 seasons, he had 15 homers. Although that 15 homers for Loney came in 96 games, but a 331 average. Then that first full season that he had in 2008, where he hit 13 homers, drove in 90, and hit 289. I don't see 90 ribbies for uh, for Josh Bell, but I think somewhere in in like the teens, home the low teens. So in the 12 is not a teen. I, I get that, but the the 12 to 15 range. But like a 285 average OBP, I think you get a you get a definite boost. So if you're in OBP leagues, I think he can be a guy who has almost that 100 point split. So if I think he can hit 280, then you're talking maybe a 380 OBP. That'd be really nice. Uh, obviously, that doesn't translate to much. That translates to something in standard five by fives. You're going to get more runs. And right now, roster resource has him slotted in at number two in the lineup. If that's the case, even if it's only against righties then uh, I really like that because that OBP, that offense should be good with McCutcheon, Marte, Polanco uh, all right behind him. You can start to see some runs scored. Now, I don't know exactly how many plate appearances he's going to get, but I would say uh, and that could be like a 90 runs scored pace for however a full season pace for however many plate appearances he ends up getting. I think Josh Bell will have some in and outs in the lineup. I don't know that he's going to be, even though he's a switch hitter, I don't think he's going to be the full-on guy uh, 100%. I think somebody like David Freeze could take some of his plate appearances against lefties because despite being the switch hitter, he has had some struggles against lefties throughout his minor league career. And, of course, uh, even last year, he only had 23 plate appearances, but they were very bad, and they were in line with what he's done in the minors. So I don't judge Josh Bell off of just the 23 plate appearances against lefties, but if you go back and look at his uh, track record in the minors, he had some struggles against lefties there as well. But give me a full-side platoon guy with the strong average, a handful of homers, some decent runs, maybe even you know throw a handful of stolen bases there. But when you're talking like... Five to eight stolen bases from a first baseman. It's not game changing. It's not like oh, that's why I won my league. But it's 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 incremental value. It's nice value that adds to a first baseman because you don't usually get first baseman stolen bases. So if you're like me and you don't usually chase down the the big stolen base rabbits, instead you're trying to get uh, contributions everywhere you can. Those extra six from somebody like a Josh Bell can be nice. So I think he'll have a, a decent season. It's a corner infielder in any league that you're going to consider him. Though, Do not get too aggressive and start putting him at first base. I think that's a losing strategy. Does Tony Watson hold the closers role? Very interesting question. You got a guy who is a um, left-hander. There's a left-handed bias against putting them in the uh, in the closers role. I uh, you know the, the, I think the main reason for that is usually that teams don't necessarily have two or three great lefties, so that you know they can't hold a Watson off until the ninth, just so that he can close the game when you know. Why am I blanking on a big power lefty in the central right now? They first off, the only guy I can think of is in the east. And the only reason I think I'm thinking of him in relation to Pittsburgh is because he's in the same state and it's Ryan Howard, who's no longer a threatening lefty. So sweet brain on the fly here right now. Let's think. Uh first off, okay, Anthony Rizzo. There I find I found one. So if Anthony Rizzo is coming up in the seventh or eighth uh of a key game, uh, of you know, key at bat in that game. Well, and you don't have another lefty that you trust. That's why teams don't usually want their lefties closing. 
However, this particular team does have some lefties they can trust. They're not as good as Watson necessarily, but I don't think you're going to feel too bad if Rizzo has to face Felipe Rivero or Antonio Bastardo. Those are not bad lefties, particularly when a lefty-lefty situation comes up. So I think that that excuse is out the window. I don't think that you have to worry about him too much there for Tony Watson holding onto the rope. That said, I do think that Daniel Hudson could come in and grab that role. Now, uh, there's some others who like Juan Nicasio uh, to maybe take that role, but uh, Daniel Hudson's the guy I'm looking at. I know he's kind of had some some ups and downs here. He had a disastrous period last year. Did uh, Tony? Excuse me. Did Daniel Hudson that absolutely crushed his season? He had a 24-21 ERA, 24.21 in nine and two thirds innings. In this summer uh, like stretch of, I think, what was it? It was 15 appearances. Absolutely just crushed, and that tanked his ERA for the season. He had a 155 ERA in the 29 innings before that and a 166 in the 21 and two-thirds after that. So, listen, it counts. He had that trouble. If it happens again, it's going to tank you. But when you kind of look at the makeup of Daniel Hudson's season, you see that he was mostly great save one awful period. I don't know if he was fighting through injury and maybe should have been on the DL or just didn't have his mechanics or one of his pitches was off. Whatever it was, it was horrific. But his fastball's back up to 95-9 out of the bullpen. He gets whiffs on all three of his pitches, including a slider and a changeup. I really like it. And when you did, so I recently uh, did a piece on the early closers market. This was back in December where I actually looked at this this very question here, and I was saying that Daniel Hudson could get that job, and I compared the scales between Hudson and Watson over the or, yeah Hudson and Watson over the last two years, and it was pretty close. In fact, the kind of the more the more luck based ones. I'm not saying they're flat luck, but the ones that that aren't always in your control. They really were against Hudson, and they really favored Watson, particularly left on base rate and batting average on balls in play. There is a skills component to that. And again, we have to discredit Hudson for the troubles that he's had and credit Watson for the success that he's had. But in the end, you're not necessarily projecting guys for an 81 left on base rate and a 242 Babbitt, which is what Watson's had since 15, and a 65 left on base rate, 65%, and a 318 Babbitt, which is what Hudson's had in those in those two seasons. So if you even those out a little bit, which something like uh, the ERA indicators can do, you're seeing that the two are a lot closer. So I think there's a chance that Hudson can take that role. Watson did have some some struggles of of his own uh, during the time when he was closing, but I don't think that they're going to be in necessarily in a rush to just move him out of there. What I think could happen is that Tony Watson could have the role, hopefully for their sake, do very well with it, and then if they're not having the season that they want, remember last year they were seventy eight and eighty three. So if the Pirates are struggling a bit uh, to compete in that very nasty central. That's that's still going to be so tough for years to come. Now, uh, especially with Milwaukee on their way up, Cincinnati might be the bottom feeder in there, but uh, Milwaukee has, has an amazing farm system. They're doing some good things this year, and then you got the Cubs, Cardinals, and Pirates. Going to be tough. So if everything doesn't break well for them and they're not playing as well as they want, then maybe they look to trade somebody like a like like a Tony Watson and. Because I believe he's in, yeah, he's in his last year here, 
that's where I think Daniel Hudson has a, a better chance of taking it. So I do think Tony Watson has a very good chance of holding the role should he stay with the team all year. But I do think that if you draft him, particularly in an NL only, I'd maybe throw the dollar on Daniel Hudson because I'm always getting an, uh, a, a big strikeout middle reliever or two anyway in an NL only just for a buck so I can spend some extra money elsewhere, maybe on a big closer like a Watson or a big starter or whatever I want to do. I just I don't mind putting in those middle relievers as opposed to the you know, just to kind of stick with their own team here, as opposed to like the Steven Brault's or the Chad Cools of the world. I don't really want so many fourth, fifth starters. I would rather take uh, a, a great middle reliever at a buck or two. Maybe just pair the pair the two guys, Watson and Hudson, and that way if the trade does happen, or if Watson fails, which is possible, even though he's been so excellent now for several years, then, uh, then I think you've got the backup, because I do think it is Daniel Hudson who would be in line to take it. All right, my favorite target on this team, uh, again, this is based on cost. Doesn't mean it has to be a low-end guy uh, just because you know they're a value player or whatever phrase you want to use for it. You, know, you can pick the best guy and just say, hey, I'm going to pay the, the price with him. It, the, the, the best guy on the team in terms of the highest cost is Martin. I already mentioned I don't want to pay that. So I think right now it's probably going to be Ivan Nova. Um, I do. I, I like Nova. I do. Um, I, I've always kind of thought that there was more than what we were seeing out of him although that 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 home park just decimated him and it made it really difficult he couldn't keep the ball in the yard he's always had more control than command so he doesn't walk a lot of guys but he doesn't always throw the most quality strikes and so you play in a park like yankee stadium that's going to burn you particularly even when you're on the road you're going around to the rest of the al east most of the time and they're not very forgiving in the rest of those parks either tampa bay is about the only one that plays a little bit more neutral all the other ones really favor homers some like substantially so the rogers center in camden yards and then uh to right-handers fenway park as well so he had some obscene home run ratios throughout his career save one year uh, in 2013, when he kept homers at a .6 ERA or .6 homer per nine clip, quite fittingly, his homer to fly ball ratio was eight percent. So there was a little bit of luck there, and it happened to be his very best season ever. Well, last year he had a 1.8 Ivan Nova did in 97 innings with the Yankees, 1.8 homer per nine rate, 21 percent homer to fly ball ratio. He goes over to the Pirates, it gets back down to .6. Once again, thanks to an 8% homer-to-fly ball ratio. So with the Yankees, he was on the on the far end of the craziness. Super homers, uh, obscene homer-to-fly ball ratio. When he went to the Pirates, he was on the complete opposite end. Very low homer rate because of a very minuscule homer-to-fly ball ratio. I think it'll meet somewhere, not in the middle. I think it'll be closer to the league average, though. And, and the league average is usually 9 to 10% on the homer-to-fly ball ratio, and his career is 13%. So if you bump him down those extra three percentage points down to 10% and you take his 1.1 homer per nine career rate, I think you can get it to like a 0.8 and that's going to play well. So we all know that PNC Park works well. It's not just Ray Searage and the, and the statistical group that they've got working there and Clint Hurdle, you know, uh, all of them incorporating the knowledge 
into helping their their players it's the park itself that that sometimes the easiest answer is the right one and that park alone can very much help you he doesn't walk guys he was he didn't have to pitch afraid at all Ivan Nova had a one percent walk rate in those 11 starts with the Pirates because he's just pumping it in there he's not afraid of getting beaten so much via the home run and so even with a 67 percent excuse me 69 percent nice left on base rate he still had a 306 ERA because he just wasn't walking. There weren't guys on base uh, to strand, really. And so he wasn't stranding the, the ones that he was letting on at, at a great clip, but there just weren't that many to, to have to strand. So he ended up doing really well with them. I think a full season uh, with Pittsburgh, Ivan Nova can give you a, a 330 ERA for 180 or so innings. And that would be really nice because right now he's going off the board as the 76th starter off the board at t- pick 288. So give me that all day. That's my favorite target right now on the uh, Pirates. My stay away, I've made it clear, is Marte. I'm just not paying that high price. Got nothing necessarily against Marte as a player. Watching him play is exciting. He's a good player. Uh, but that the pick 25 is too high. I, I just don't see the return on investment there. And I think there's a chance for it to really go awry. So, you know, even if it was one round later, if he's closer to pick 40... I would feel much more comfortable. But uh, the fact that he's up there in that second round, just not working for me. Off the radar. So this is, you know, Ivan Nova's cheap, but he's not off the radar. We're talking off the radar here as a guy that, you know, might not even be with the major league team right now or is going for, for, for pennies, like literally not even going in every draft right now. That That's kind of what I'm looking at here. I'd like to give you another, a new answer, but I, I don't know that I have one. It might it might just be Daniel Hudson, who I've kind of already covered. I don't know that there's going to be so much hype around him uh, that that he's really going to go for much more than a dollar, even in that you know in NL only. So he's probably the answer. If you want another one though, just just for the sake of, of giving some other names here that I that I'm interested in and keep keeping an eye on, Alan Hansen is a guy who was a long long time prospect and. I find these kinds of guys interesting. Uh, this happens a lot in fantasy, I think. When a guy is a prospect and he first kind of hits that crescendo of his, uh, of his prospect type and he's getting rated on all the lists, uh, maybe when they first come on, you know, when his first season of getting rated, Alan Hansen's was 2013. He was 61st at Baseball America, 54th at MLB, 66th at at, uh, at Baseball Respectus. I'm looking at at Baseball Reference where they put the ratings on there. That's why I cite those three in particular. That's when the hype is cooking. Even though he's only 20 years old, you know, people have kind of uh, the name on the end of their tongues. They're excited about him. And then he's, you know, still three years from even making the majors, let alone having any sort of impact. And he's been kind of forgotten. And it's not, part of it is that he hasn't really put up amazing numbers. But this was still a guy who had a lot of prospect hype that folks were really interested in. And he still put up a reasonable facsimile of the numbers that he was putting up prior to that. He had some struggles in AAA. His bat wasn't amazing. You know, he's kind of hitting 260s. Uh, sub 400 sluggings. He was never really going to be big punch, though. It's all about the speed with him. In fact, he continues to run at a great clip, 35, 36 stolen bases each of the last two seasons. So I like that out of uh, Alan Hansen. It looks like he could be kind of a utility guy for them. He's played second, third, and short. Uh, the most at short, thir- th- excuse me, 370, 370 games, 290 at second, and 43 at third. So you can get him to be bouncing around the infield there 
Josh Harrison also kind of has that role. He's he's got second base covered, but we just first off we never know when injuries are going to strike up. Jordy Mercer I know is a great defender and hits lefties well, but I don't know that he's you know so locked in that you can't ever see anything happening. Jungle Gung has run into some injury issues, particularly uh, and not only that, but he's also had some off the field issues like. I don't think it's completely out of bounds to suggest that he has a drinking issue that he needs to get in under control. And I don't know if there's going to be any MLB uh, sanctioned suspension for some of the stuff that he's been involved in. I believe he was involved in a hit and run DUI situation uh, over in Korea, if, I, if I'm remembering the news properly. And if I'm not, I apologize. But I know for a fact that he's had multiple DUIs. So there's been an issue there. So what I'm saying is that he's also not locked in, that you can rely on him, uh, Jung Ho Gung, to kind of have his stuff in order. And he only played 103 games last year, 126 in his first season. Although in his first season, he did get barreled over by uh, Chris Coughlin in a, in a takeout slide that, that broke his leg. So that, that was part of it as well. And the recovery carried over. Uh, so that, that whole injury kind of accounts for a lot of that. But the fact is, is there could be some wiggle room playing time there. Alan Hansen could get it. Could be a nice speed option. If you're in one of these super deep, like, NFBC 50-round draft and holds, I like him in a league like that. Otherwise, he's an NL-only guy. And then maybe you put a little star by him in your mixed league uh, just to say, hey, keep an eye here. And if something breaks in uh, in spring, you want to jump quickly. Or if you start to see playing time maybe opening up in April, May, that's when you jump. But just keep Alan Hansen's name uh, on your uh, on your mind there because he could be a nice speed asset. I did just get done mentioning uh, that I don't love going after speed only guys, but when they don't cost anything, I'm certainly interested uh, a bit more. And that's what that's the case with Alan Hansen right now. Impact prospects. They do have some that could come up and do some damage this year. Uh, the biggest one right now is, of course, I believe a top 10 prospect. Uh, I think MLB Network is going to be doing their, their prospect show very soon, um, I think on Saturday. Tower Glass now is going to be very high there. And that's fine. But I'm not a huge Tower Glass now guy, folks. The 6'8", that frame... It's difficult to continue to repeat, and we've seen the walk issues. Having seen him a bit more actual gameplay last year instead of little video clips of what he's been able to do and like reading other people's stuff, you know, he only had 23 major league innings, so I'm not going just off of that. Saw some stuff from his uh, AAA work on the MILB.com stuff that you can get to, which is just like the at bat uh, for MLB. And he just walks way too many guys. He walked five guys all year last year throughout all levels. He still only had a 193 ERA in the minors because he's that good and, and they can't hit him. But a lot of those walk issues are self-imposed. Now, some of it is bad umpires that uh, that can't necessarily call some of the nastiness of his stuff. That happens sometimes, too, with these guys who have electric stuff. But I think a lot of it, since we also saw a 5.0 ratio in the majors is is his own it's the fact that he does not have great control command or control really for tower glass now and his 6-8 frame it's hard to continually repeat the mechanics and so i think that that's going to be a problem for him uh perhaps a prolonged problem i just don't feel like once you get kind of past the the 6-7 6-8 and above it becomes difficult and you have to kind of be a unicorn who figures it out. And so I think he's being a little bit overhyped. So I don't really love him as an impact prospect. I already mentioned Josh Bell, who still qualifies, I believe. Um, let me, let me, ch- let me check that y'all. Since we're, since we're doing a solo episode, it's a little dirty here and I'm, you can probably hear me typing, looking things up a little bit of, uh, freelance in here, 152 plate appearances. No, it's still intact. Okay. So I guess some of those came in September, so they don't count against him. 
Is that, is that what I'm to understand? He asks to nobody who can answer him right now. But yeah, so Josh Bell's still a prospect. I obviously already mentioned that I like him. And then the biggest one, I think, um, who could have the biggest impact if there was if there was space, but there really isn't, based on the first question I asked about the outfield, is Austin Meadows. And he's gonna need he's gonna need an injury because underperformance, like the the leashes that McCutcheon, Marte, and, and Polanco have are huge. And I don't think that a, a, a terrible May out of Gregory Polanco is going to open the door for Austin Meadows or, you know, a, a two for 50 stretch out of Starling Marte. They're not going to say, well, I guess we got to go to Meadows. Those guys have all earned, and I don't even mention McCutcheon because we saw what happened with him last year. He had some issues and they had no, there were no thoughts of taking him out of the lineup. He's proven himself a billion times over. So you got a 22-year-old in Austin Meadows. There's no need to rush him. He just hit AAA last year for 37 games. He was not particularly good there uh, with a 214, 297, 460 line. And I'm not even trying to crush him for that. What I'm saying is him getting more seasoning and Austin Meadows spending uh, five months at, at AAA and then maybe getting a September call-up, there's nothing wrong with that. So he could he could be an impact prospect if something happened and he was thrust into the role. But I think... Josh Bell of those three tops, uh, top ones that you're looking at, he's the one that you that you want to go for because he's got a role, he's got a chance, he's going to be on the team and he's got a chance to to play right away. Beyond that, beyond those three, it really starts to be uh, another wave that's not even going to start coming up until 1819 with guys like Kevin Newman, who I believe was their first round pick last year, or no, two years ago, he was the 19th pick for them. Mitch Keller is an interesting name who is on the rise and could maybe speed up his. Uh, his his arrival, but I don't think he's necessarily somebody that you want to be targeting this year or anything like that. Cabrian Hayes is an interesting guy, but he's he's only hit a ball right now. Um, and then some of the other guys are a little bit deeper, maybe like a Nick Kingham, uh, but I don't know that he's too different than like the Brawls and the Cools of the world. So you know, if it's not Bell, it's Hanson, and so it's two guys I've already mentioned. So there's a little little rehash on this particular section particularly because I just don't like Tower Glass now that much. So uh, that's going to do it. Uh, I hope you guys don't mind this. I know solo episode a little bit different, but, you know, been a little bit hectic. Like I said, Eno's schedule uh, and I, my mind didn't work out with him doing MLB Now and having the launch of his of his new website. And so I didn't want to give you guys nothing. And um, I'll be back hopefully on Sunday with Jason. I have to talk to him. If not, then I'll I'll try to get somebody on for like a Monday episode. One of my one of my colleagues. I know you all been talking about getting Al Melchior on. I, I have to talk with him, figure out our best schedule. But if not, I'll do another solo. Let me know how you like these. If you totally hate them, that's okay. You can let me know. That doesn't mean they're going to go away if one of you says I hate them. But I, I'm curious your thoughts. So if you can leave a comment, let me know if it plays at all or if it just doesn't work when it's solo. Uh, because we're going to be doing different stuff this year with Eno not being. Uh, Ready, not being available to do two, three a week, it's going to be a situation where I'm going to be doing different things. I'm going to have people coming in uh, with, from Rotographs, uh, guests, uh, and of course mine and Jason's are going to be on every Sunday that we can do it. But there's going to be some different things. So if, there's, if, if this is a format that you guys think plays well, then maybe there'll be some more of these solo ones. Anyway, thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>